Starts off Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and just ask, Lord, that once again our hearts would be turned towards You and that we would hear what Your Spirit has to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Be seated. Also, I just want to mention um, to continue uh, being in prayer for Stephen and Pat Apple. Um, Stephen uh, is getting some treatment for the physical issues that he has. And uh, he has to have some surgery on his leg. And so um, we're hoping to get that done here pretty soon. And then there'll, there'll be a little bit of recovery involved. And hopefully they're going to be able to come up and spend some time with us after that. So just be praying that uh, God will guide them and provide for their needs financially because they don't have medical insurance, and so, the, uh, you know, the whole thing is very costly. Any surgery, of course, is costly, and, uh, you know, the testing that goes on beforehand and so on and so forth. So so just be praying for them, that God would provide for them, and, and that uh, uh, the doctors would have the wisdom in knowing how best to deal with his uh, issues. Okay, so 2 Thessalonians 1. Chapter 1, 1 to 12. A few years ago, some of you may remember this, um, Sprint ran a cell phone commercial that I thought was pretty clever. They were talking about an instance um, when cellular static had caused some confusion between a married couple. The wife had called on the phone, uh, talked to her husband on the phone, and asked her husband to bring home a movie. You know, something old. The husband, however, thought that she said, 
Get a monkey with a cold. The camera then pans over to this little monkey that is laying on the couch with this thermometer in its mouth. And the cellular man, you know, dressed in a black suit and all, uh, uh, sitting next to the monkey, says, it's not his fault. It's the cellular static. After he gets done extolling the virtues of, of uh, his wireless network plan, the wife looks at him and she says, well, what about the monkey? And the cellular man responds with something like this. Plenty of fluids and he'll be fine. (laughs) Sometimes we suffer from spiritual static. We sometimes don't always hear it as clearly as we should, huh? Misinformation also can mislead members of the church. That's exactly what happened in Thessalonica. The book of 2 Thessalonians was written just months after 1 Thessalonians was written because these followers of Christ had encountered some spiritual static. As a result, the, the believers were bewildered. They were puzzled because of the intense persecution that they were facing, which led some of them to think that they were in the tribulation period. This is... Uh, essentially what is being addressed in this chapter, chapter 1. In addition, many were confused about the second coming because of a letter that they had received from somebody who had forged Paul's name. And we're going to see that addressed in chapter 2. And then a number of believers were mixed up so much that they had quit their jobs to wait for... Christ's return, the second coming. They thought, you know, it's right around the corner, so why should I work? So they quit their jobs uh, to wait for His return. And that's what Paul addresses in the third chapter of this short letter. Each chapter contains um, a correction of a very common response that many of us have when we are faced with misinformation. Here's another way to look at this uh, brief book. In chapter 1, the problem is the believers were despairing. And the solution to that is that God is going to set everything right. Chapter 2, the believers were filled with fear. And the solution is that, well, the day of the Lord hasn't come yet. And then chapter 3, some were a bit on the fanatical side. And so Paul's solution to that is stay busy with the Lord's work. Keep doing the Lord's work and you won't have time for fanaticism. So, as Paul, Silas, and Timothy considered the information that they received about these young believers and uh, young brothers and sisters in Thessalonica, they immediately wrote a letter in an effort to correct the confusion and to comfort their concerns. I think we can learn a few lessons from this. First, We often need multiple exposures to God's truth before it begins to make sense to us. I know that I need to hear something many times before it really starts to sink in. That's why it's important for us to read our Bibles and to pray every day, 
To make Sunday worship attendance a priority in our lives. And to plug into a Bible study during the week. Repetition over and over is very important. Because what I learned this week, I'll be prone to forget next week when I really need it. Repetition and review, I believe, is the key to sustained learning. Second, it's easy for us to get sidetracked when things are difficult for us. Because these believers were undergoing trials, their capacity to cling to truth was diminished. When the heat is on, we are quick to forget the basic principles that we've learned to help us to get through those tough times. So sometimes we need um, help in getting back on track. Again, the repetition helps. Really, as you read through the Bible, if you've ever read through the Bible from cover to cover, you really see that there's a lot of repetition there. There's a lot of the same themes being covered over and over and over and over again. And that's because we are quick to forget. So, repetition. Third, helping others grow requires patience and realistic expectations. We must remain committed to Christians who get confused and and we're called to be diligent when disciples get diverted. The Christian life often feels like three steps forward and uh, two steps back. But even in that, we're still making progress, right? If I do the math right, if you go three forward and two back, you've gained one at least. So, even though it, it often is three steps forward and two steps back, we need to be encouraged. We need to hang in there. Not just ourselves, but we need to hang in there with those who are wayward or who are worried or who are weak. Don't give up on those who have periodic setbacks, just as you wouldn't want somebody to give up on you. Continue to be loving and supportive, but at the same time, encourage the weak one to get back up and to keep on trying. Follow Paul's methodology. Comfort and correct. Encourage and exhort. At firm and admonish. We see that uh, in, in Paul's life over and over and over again. And then fourth, spiritual growth is often accomplished through a variety of means. Preaching, teaching, and prayer were Paul's primary means for maturing believers. And th- those are still good for today. Those methods are still solid methods for maturing believers today. Preaching, teaching, and prayer. But there's one other way to generate growth in the life of the Christian. We don't like to talk much about this, but it's unavoidable if we're serious about following Christ. Do you know what that other method is? Say again. Suffering, persecution, that's right. Teaching, preaching, prayer, and persecution can be catalysts for spiritual growth. Now, our chapter this morning describes the return of Jesus to the earth in what is called the second coming. The second coming occurs after Christians have been taken to heaven in the rapture and after 
the seven-year tribulation on the earth that we've talked about in the past. All the Christians of the church age who are here called saints will return with Jesus in His second coming to the earth. In verse 10, you read that when Jesus returns to the earth, He will be glorified in His saints. His saints, you and I, are the ones who will be glorified on account of what Jesus has accomplished in our lives. The Bible says that when He appears, we shall be like Him. 1 John 3, 2. You will have a glorified physical body, a body that can handle life in heaven for all eternity. And your spirit will have been perfected to be without sin. The angels in heaven and the people on the earth who survive the tribulation will see the radical physical and spiritual transformation that has occurred in us. It will be a, a climactic unveiling, if you will. A, an extreme makeover. Not of the TV variety. Much better than that. After which we will forever be on display as illustrations of what the power and the grace of God have accomplished in those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Jesus will reveal us in that day. But in the meantime, we're called upon to reveal Jesus in our day. God wants to be glorified in our lives today as well as in the future. I think that's the point of Paul's comments in this first chapter. Christ glorified in you, as Paul states in verse 10 and prays in verse 12. He says there in verse 10, When He comes in that day, that's the day of His second coming, when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints. And then in chapter or verse 12 he says, That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. Now, the introduction to this letter is very similar to the opening verses of 1 Thessalonians. Take a look at, at verses 1 and 2. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, Paul writes as a member of a team with Silvanus or Silas and Timothy. The church of the Thessalonians was definitely a church on fire. And it appeared that they were growing by leaps and bounds. But they were also a church in the fire because of the widespread persecution that many of them were facing. They needed to be reminded that they were in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what was happening, they were not alone. Grace and peace were available to them. And I think the same can be said of us, don't you think? Repeat with me. I am not alone. I am in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what happens... I am not alone. Very good. Now, this chapter can be outlined like this. 
first we're going to see indications of God's growing work in our lives, which is part of Christ glorified in you. We'll see that in verses 3 to 4. Second, we're going to see how God's justice will be vindicated, which is also part of Christ glorified in you. Verses 5 to 10. The first part of this will be that believers will have a glorious future. We have a glorious future to look forward to. Verses 5 and also verse 10. But the second part of this is that unbelievers will not have a glorious future. We'll see that in verses 6 to 9. And then the third part of the chapter proclaims how our lives should radiate God's glory. Verses 11 to 12. So first, let's look at the indications of God's growing work in our lives which again is part of Christ glorified in you. Verse 3. going to be the actually the beginning part of verse 3 here where Paul says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. I love how much encouragement Paul gave to people. He was practicing his own admonition from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 to in everything give thanks. You remember that from last week. When, when he wrote it in the first part of verse 3 there, he says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. The word bound means to be under obligation. He had no choice, in other words, but to give thanks because God's work was so obvious in each one of their lives. Paul was positive, not negative, about these believers. Instead of focusing on what was wrong with them, he caught them being good. He caught them being good. That's a good practice, I think, for us to follow. So often we catch people being bad, but how often do we catch them being good? When we catch them being bad, we're quick to speak up. But when we catch them being good, we usually don't say anything. Paul was excited about catching them being good. And he spoke to them about it. Paul was very up on the Thessalonians in spite of the spiritual static that was in their lives, that they were experiencing. I love how he consistently modeled a grace-based ministry. He was full of grace and he extended grace over and over again. He expresses his thanks for three specific qualities that he sees in them. Verse 3, uh, the, pick up where we left off. He says, Because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Do you expect God to respond when you pray? Or are you surprised when He does? One of the reasons Paul is so thankful is that the Thessalonians' uh, growing faith, their increased love, and their obvious endurance was a direct answer to his prayer. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 
verse 10 and also verses 12 and 13. Let me read it to you. This is what Paul's prayer for them was. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God, before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. That's what Paul prayed for them. And now he's thanking God for the answer to those prayers. And in the, in the, at the same time, he's affirming them. He's caught them doing something good. And he's letting them know. Job well done. Keep on. Let's look at these three indications of God's pleasure and Paul's reasons for praise. They are the marks, I believe, of a maturing Christian and the habits of a healthy church. They are indications of God's growing work in our lives and of Christ being glorified in us. As we go through these, ask yourself how you measure up personally. First indication. Our faith should be flourishing. He said, because, verse 3, your faith grows exceedingly. The phrase grows exceedingly literally means to increase above ordinary degree. It can also mean super growing. Your faith is super growing, Paul is saying to them. And it depicts a tree that shoots up rapidly and bears fruit before anyone expects it to. I was reading earlier this week about cedar trees. Apparently cedar trees, uh, at least some varieties of them, grow pretty rapidly. Uh, I, I think something like six to seven feet a year they grow. That's pretty rapid growth. Paul is saying that your faith is, is super growing. It's growing rapidly. The initial seed of faith that sprouted when they first came, became Christians had been fertilized and was now exploding with growth. By the way, it's possible that some of us have been guilty of making faith a static, sort of a static concept where we focus on putting our faith in Christ as a one-time decision. We think that once we put our faith in Christ, that's all that's really needed. But that's not all that's really needed. It's essential to becoming a Christian. But our faith needs to be growing. It's not something that's static. It's not something that stays the same. It's something that should be growing more and more each day. So where do you stand on that? Is your faith growing? The second indication of God's growing work in our lives is that our love should be limitless. Look at verse 3 at the end. And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. This is agape love. It's the Greek word that's used there, the word agape. It's a self-sacrificial commitment that puts the needs of others before our own. The word Paul uses here for abounds is again one of those, you know, extra. It's super abounds. Super abundantly. Paints the picture of, of a, a river that is overflowing its banks. 
It's super abounding. Most of us have some boundaries in our minds of how far we will go in loving someone. We've placed some boundaries there. We say, I'll go this far, but I won't go any further. Limitless love is love that goes beyond those barriers. A flourishing faith in Jesus and a limitless love for other people are two vital signs of spiritual growth. Where do you stand on those? Is your faith growing? How about your love? Is your love limitless? Is it abounding? Is it super abundantly overflowing? That leads to a third indicator of God's pleasure and His growing work in our lives. The third indication is that our spiritual stamina should be strong. Some of us shut down spiritually when we encounter difficulties. The Thessalonians didn't do that. Paul actually bragged about them to other people. Verse 4, he says, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. While it's often a foreign concept to the church in America, suffering is actually a necessary tool for growth. A necessary tool. Hebrews 5.8 says that Jesus learned obedience by the things that He suffered. If Jesus profited from suffering, if Jesus profited from problems, then so can we. Someone put it this way. Talent is formed in solitude, but character in the storms of life. The nature of the suffering at Thessalonica is described as persecutions, which is a word used primarily for a systematic attempt to oppress and harass Christians. We talked about the persecuted church a few weeks ago, but let me remind you that many, many believers in the world today face persecution. It's not something that we generally see in this country, but just about anywhere else you go on the globe, believers are facing persecution. The Thessalonians lived in a, in a similar environment. The word tribulations in this verse is actually a more general word than persecutions, and it refers to any pressure or stress in life. These valiant believers had strong spiritual stamina because they were enduring or they were holding up under the pressure. The Bible, folks, never promises that our lives are going to be trouble-free. In fact, following Jesus sometimes stirs up problems that wouldn't otherwise be there as we're called upon to take up our cross daily, according to Luke 9.23. As we persevere under persecution, God can use our response as He did with the Thessalonians to not only strengthen us, but also to help others. Remember Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, when he said, talks about God who comforts us in all our tribulation 
that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Sometimes God brings tribulation into our lives so that we can learn how to comfort others in it. A very important concept. So, no matter what is going on around you or how difficult your life is right now, your faith can flourish. You can practice limitless love. And God can give you spiritual stamina as you stay focused on Him. Amen? Let's look at how God's justice will be vindicated, which is also part of Christ glorified in you. Despite their persecutions and trials, the Thessalonians had a secure and glorious future. By focusing on the future, they could handle whatever happened in the present. So again, the first part of this will be that believers have a glorious future. There is going to be reward and rest for believers. And that's something that we need to stay focused on. The persecution that they faced was evidence that God was righteous, working out His plan for them. Many of us think that suffering proves that God doesn't care. When exactly the opposite is true. The signs of a maturing Christian, faith, love, and stamina are proof positive that God has accepted them. According to verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. The first part of verse 7 says that those who are troubled will be given rest. He says there in verse 7, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. This word is, is the opposite of tribulation and was used of the releasing of a bowstring. You know how a bowstring, when, it, when it's tied onto the bow, it's taut, it's tight. But then when you release it, what happens to it? It becomes loose. It's restful. It's a picture of rest in a way. Instead of being all tightened and bound up and everything, it's, it's, it's rest. So when Jesus returns, He will set things right and He will liberate believers from the pressures of persecution. Jump down to verse 10 to see what we have looked forward to have to look forward to. He says, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. I love the words to that old song, um, Jesus, we crown you with praise. Goes like this. The first time you came, they crowned you with thorns as on an old rugged cross you were laid. But the next time you come, it won't be as before. For this time, we'll crown you with praise. Alpha and Omega, mighty God, the great I am. Emmanuel, the ancient of days. King of kings and Lord of lords. Calvary's sacrificial lamb. We love you and we crown you with praise. That's probably a, a pretty good description 
of what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. Instead of grimacing under persecution and tribulation, we're going to be singing the praises of the King of Kings. Before we go any further in our study of this letter, an important distinction, I think, needs to be made here. In 1 Thessalonians, the focus is on Christ coming for His church in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But in 2 Thessalonians, the emphasis is on Christ coming with His church in judgment on an unbelieving world. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 says that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That's talking about the second coming. When Christ, who is our life, comes back the second time, then we are going to come back with Him. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 14 says this, and this is talking about the second coming. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, who are these armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, that are following Jesus at his second coming? Well, Revelation chapter 19 gives us a clue. Verses 7 to 8. Let me read it to you again. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So, You see something common in both those passages there? A group of people that are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. One of them is the group that is coming back with Jesus at His second coming. The other group is a group that is identified as the bride of the Lamb, His wife. And who is that? But the church already in heaven and returning with Jesus at His second coming. That's why both groups are wearing the same thing. It's an indication of them being cleansed and washed. That gives, I think, some clarity to that passage in in the book of Jude, verse 14, where it says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints. Who is that? I believe that's us. And what is the Lord who is returning with these ten thousands of saints going to do? He is finally going to execute judgment on those unrepentant sinners on the earth. So let's be sure that we understand the difference between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians as it relates to the two stages of the second coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 refers to the rapture. 
Second Thessalonians chapter 1 refers to the day of the Lord, also known as the tribulation. First Thessalonians has Christ returning in the clouds. Second Thessalonians has Christ returning to the earth. First Thessalonians, he comes secretly for the church. Second Thessalonians, he comes openly with the church. First Thessalonians, believers escape the tribulation. Second Thessalonians, unbelievers experience tribulation. First Thessalonians, it occurs at any time. And second Thessalonians, it occurs at the end of the tribulation. See, we don't know when the rapture is going to take place, but we do know when the second coming is going to take place. It's going to take place seven years after the beginning of the tribulation. And that, the tribulation period, is marked by the agreement that is, is uh, codified for us in Daniel chapter 9, that great prophecy that speaks about the Antichrist uh, and the agreement he's going to make with the nation of Israel for their peace for a period of seven years. So, believers are going to have a glorious, glorious, glorious future. That's the first part of this second section. But the second part of this will be that unbelievers will not have a glorious future. There's going to be retribution for unbelievers. Verse 6, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. In verse 8, In flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So the first part of verse 6 establishes that everything to come in the future is because it is a righteous thing with God to repay. His justice comes out of His inner being and is based on His holiness, His truthfulness, and His righteousness. Moses put it this way in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is He. That's from the New International Version. point is, God always acts in a way that is consistent with the requirements of His character as revealed in His law. He rules His creation with complete integrity. With complete honesty. He keeps His Word and He renders to all creatures their due. The word justice in the Bible refers to conformity to a rule or to a norm. In other words, when we speak of God's justice, we're saying God plays by the rules. While there is some justice in the world today, we're still awaiting that day when God's justice will be meted out. In the meantime, God's apparent delay in dispensing justice may cause some people to doubt. And it may cause other people to despair or even to depart from the faith. When evil goes unpunished and when good is not rewarded, sometimes people are tempted to walk away. I don't know how many times you've been wronged. 
or how many times uh, and how many ways you've been victimized. I don't know how long you've waited for justice to be served in a particular situation. But I do know this. God is not deaf to our cries. Genesis 18.25 asks, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And what's the answer to that question? It's yes. Yes, He will. But that leads to another question, doesn't it? When will He make everything right? It's helpful to remember that we are living in the interval between Christ's first coming and His second coming. 2,000 years ago, He came as an unrecognized baby in a manger. But when He returns to the earth, He will come as the inescapable judge of all mankind. Several years ago, Johnny Carson had Billy Graham as a guest on this show. How many of you remember Johnny Carson? Who doesn't remember him? Raise your hand. Johnny Carson. Okay, yeah. The young folks. Johnny Carson uh, uh, used to be the host of The Tonight Show years ago. But he had Billy Graham as a guest. And at one point there was a lull in the conversation and Johnny said, you know what, Billy? I bet if Jesus ever came back to the earth, we'd do him in again. In other words, he said, you know, I think if Jesus ever came back to the earth, we'd just crucify him again. Billy Graham leaned forward in his seat and he said, in the Bible, we read that Jesus predicted predicted that He would return to earth again. But the first time, He came in love. The next time, He'll come in power. And no one will do Him in. God's plan always has always had two parts. It has always had two parts. Redemption and retribution. In redemption, He's calling out a people for His glory right now. That's the part that we're living in right now. The, the time of redemption. But in retribution, a day of judgment is coming. The last part of verse 6 tells us that there is a future impending payday to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. To repay means to give back as an equivalent. People will eventually reap in accordance with what they've sown. It's, it's, it's the law of compensation. Sowing and reaping. Warren Wiersbe writes pointedly, he says, Pharaoh tried to drown all the male babies born to the Israelites and his own army was drowned in the Red Sea. Haman plotted to wipe out the Jews and he and his own sons were wiped out. The advisors of King Darius forced him to arrest David and throw him into a lion's den. But later, they themselves were thrown to the lions. Verses 7-8 remind us that born-again believers will have rest and relief while those who have not put their faith in Christ will face righteous retribution. He says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those 
who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word revealed is is where we get the word apocalypse from and refers to an unveiling, a pulling back of the curtain to make something previously hidden now visible. Jesus is Lord right now. He is Lord right now. But a day is coming when the Lordship of Christ will be revealed for all to see clearly. Jesus will come in blazing fire at the end of the tribulation period. (coughs) Excuse me. Blazing fire and powerful angels are often associated with judgment in the Bible. When Jesus is revealed as Lord, justice will be done. Verses 8 and 9 are two of the clearest and most troubling passages in the Bible about the fate of those who refuse to put their faith in Christ. Let's read them again. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. There's an interesting play on words here. The word obey in verse 8 often means to respond to someone knocking or calling at a door. And the obvious picture that comes to mind is the scene that's described there in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. In verse 9, those who refuse to open the door are described as being shut out from the presence of the Lord. Listen, right now, Jesus is standing at the door of many lives and He is knocking. He's waiting for that one to respond to His offer of redemption. But one day, the door is going to be locked from the outside. There will be no more knocking because the day of the Lord will be a time of retribution. I want you to notice something else. Those who don't open the door, it says, will be punished with everlasting destruction. Some people like to make jokes about hell. Honestly, I don't think they're very funny. Some think of hell as just one big party place. That's simply not true. Jude 13 describes those in hell as wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Those are sobering words. C.S. Lewis captured an aspect of hell that many of us don't think about when he said, in hell, everybody will be at an infinite distance from everybody else. No parties in hell. King James Version refers to hell as the bottomless pit in Revelation 9.2 and several other passages. Let me read how Bill Hybels uh, described what hell might feel like. This is a quote. The bottomless pit conjures up dreamlike feelings of falling away. Falling, falling, falling. You've all had dreams like that. Where when you woke your heart was beating because you were falling. 
Picture in your mind hanging over a precipice and God is hanging on to you. And you're hanging on to Him. You decide you don't need Him anymore. So you let go. But the moment you let go, you know you made a mistake. You are falling. And every moment you fall further and further away from the only source of help and truth and love. And you realize you made a mistake. And you can't get back up. And you fall further and faster and further and faster into spiritual oblivion. And you know you're going the wrong direction. And you'd give anything to go back, but you can't. And you fall and you fall and you fall and you fall. How long? Forever. After all the while you're falling, you're saying, I'm further now. I'm further. I'm further from the only source of hope, truth, and love. In hell, there is never the bliss of annihilation. You'd give anything for annihilation, but it's unavailable. Only the conscious continuation of emotional anguish, physical anguish, relational anguish, and spiritual anguish forever. Wow! What a terrible thing. Or what terrible thing must one do to merit such an end? Turning back. Or turning one's back on God's offer of grace. That's the answer of Scripture. God does not want anyone to perish like that. He says so. We are living in the time of grace. The time of redemption. The Gospel is being offered to anyone who will accept it. God does not want anybody to experience hell. In fact, He went through terrible agony to keep it from happening. But no matter how much you dislike passages like this, two truths always emerge. First, it is justice that is being carried out. Not meanness. Not cruelty. Not capriciousness. But justice on God's part. It's His righteous reaction to cosmic treason on man's part. That is what turning your back on Jesus means. Treason against the God of the universe. And second, it is self-chosen. It's self-chosen. It's what those involved have always wanted. Freedom from God. It's them hanging from that precipice with God holding on to them. And them saying, I don't need God anymore. And they let go. They let go. Everything in their life has said, I don't want God messing up my plans and telling me what to do. There comes a time where man says to God, Thy will be done. Or else, God says to man, Thy will be done. What you want is what you get. Honestly, I don't like preaching like this, but but this is reality. And Scripture 
confronts us with reality at every turn. So our first point was that God's growing work in our lives is part of God glorified in you. And our second point was that God's justice will be vindicated, which is also part of Christ glorified in you. The third part of the chapter and our third point proclaims how our lives should radiate God's glory. Verse 11, Therefore, we always, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wraps up this first chapter by giving us a report on what he prays for. We know that he's already experienced answers to his prayer from the first letter as he rejoices in their flourishing faith, in their limitless love, and in their strong spiritual stamina. The final two verses give us an idea of Paul's prayer pattern. What was it that he was after? What did he want to see happen? Simply put, based on his previous teaching of rest and reward for believers and retribution for lost people, he prayed constantly for three specific things. First, he prayed for their dedication. Look at the first part of verse 11. That God would count you worthy of His calling. God wants us to be totally sold out to Him. And so Paul prays that He will make us worthy to walk with Him. Then he prays for their deeds in verse 11. He says, And fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. The work of faith that he's talking about there is our work of faith in the day-to-day of life. It's our faith being worked out in our lives. The return of Christ should comfort our hearts and our minds, but it should also impact our hands and our feet. It should impact the things that we do. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is also available to us to help us to walk in faith with Him. And then He prays for their demeanor. And what I mean by this is that, that we should radiate the breathtaking brilliance of the beauty of Christ. Look at verse 12. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love seeing all your faces every Sunday morning. Not just because you're in church, because you decided again to put up with me for another week, (laughs) but also because you radiate the Redeemer's love to everyone who looks to you. As God is doing a work in your life, and if you are, as you are being transformed, as the Bible says, from glory to glory, it's a joy. It's a joy to see that happening in each one of your lives. There's, there's a wonderful verse in Psalm 34, verse 5. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces are never 
covered with shame. Those who look to Him are radiant. And as we continue to look to Him, even in the trials and the tribulations of life, we're going to shine forth His glory in radiance. Never covered with shame. This is a great model for us to follow when praying for ourselves and for those that we love. Pray for dedication. Pray for deeds. And pray for demeanor. And watch what God does. As we wrap up this morning, I wonder if some of us this morning are experiencing spiritual static in our lives. Are you perplexed by some persecution that you're going through or wiped out maybe with some worry that you're engaged in? Stay online with Christ. Don't despair. Don't just hang up. <laughs> you know, sometimes we get that static. We say, I can't hear you, you know. Can you hear me now? I can't hear you. I can't hear you, you know. And we press the end button. Don't press it. Stay on the line. You're going to start hearing again pretty quickly. And you're going to hear quickly. One day, God's going to make everything right. Our responsibility is to keep calling out to Him. Jeremiah 33 verse 3 says, Call to Me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for these glorious truths that we have learned this morning. Thank You, Lord, that as we continue to grow in our faith and in our love, that You can do a great work in our lives. You want to do a great work in our lives. You don't want us to be self focused. You want us to be focused on You. You don't want us to be focused on our problems or on those in our lives that continue to disappoint us. You want us to be focused on You and the work that You're doing. Help us, Lord, to stay focused on You and to be patient with those in our lives that need to change and need to, to walk with You. Help us not to give up praying for them and for ourselves. So we thank You, Lord, for Your grace and Your mercy. We ask, Lord, that You would continue to do a work of transformation in our lives and glorification. Lord, that, that our lives would exude Your glory. That You would be glorified in us. We look forward to that day when You come again and we come with You and we will indeed be glorified then. We can be glorified even now as we allow You to work through us. So, help us, Lord, to that end. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name. And everybody agreed saying, Amen.